if you can establish that trust, that comfort level with your employees that you're doing everything that you can, those employees in turn present a better front face to your customer base, which in turn also helps drive additional business through your doors. From the Insight Studio, this is Found in the Rockies, a podcast all about the startup ecosystem in the Rocky Mountain region, the founders, funders, and contributors, and the stories of what they're building. I'm Stephanie Sample, and on today's show, Kimberly Nasif and how she was uniquely positioned to create Phoenix Verify, which creates safe environments for customers and employees in a COVID world and beyond. Phoenix Verify was founded almost a year ago, last June, I guess, which I guess nine months ago. After meeting a few YPOers and listening into some YPO conference calls, I had this this sort of idea that you know my background was deploying mobile workforces for 20 years. And after hearing a global conference call with Ernst & Young and hearing them say that the biggest concern that businesses had was how to bring customers and employees back to environments that they felt safe, my brain started to percolate. And being from the market research space, I started to see my old colleagues with running around like their hairs on fire because all of the customer sat data and customer experience data was really sort of made null and void by COVID. I mean, everything was really based around trust. And, you know, do you trust the environments that you're going into? Do you trust going into the grocery store? Do you trust sending your kids to school? And I think we're still still dealing with that and will still be for a while. And that's where the concept really started. I was like, you know, if I've been deploying mobile workforces for 20 years to measure experiences, let's take that mobile workforce and the technology that I've used for 20 years Let's train these people up with a certified industrial hygienist and let's go out and find some experts to help us develop a methodology that any business anywhere with multiple footprints could use. And so from that point, my business partner, Jeff Marks, and I ran out and found a great advisory board of Harvard epidemiologists, former CDC inspectors, leadership from a variety of verticals, and spent time getting their input on what businesses needed to do to mitigate risk and really have best practices in place. And that's where we started. And we are now in businesses where we deploy this mobile workforce. They go out, they go inside the businesses, they arrive unannounced and they run through an inspection and the business gets back a report card. And then they have access to our digital dashboards for reporting and seeing where they're succeeding, where they need to work on. They also get a seal of approval that they can use to evangelize out to their customer base what it is that they're doing to keep them safe. And then they can also use our technology to run their own inspections to build good habits. From my perspective, I kind of see, you know, if you're looking at ESG, you know, that kind of investing refers to a class of investing that's sustainable investing. And when it was coined, that meant clean air and water and climate. And today, you know, Phoenix Verify really feels like they're the new E, perhaps the capital E environment, because as a result of COVID, the environment is now not some giant amorphous world surrounding us, but it's our hotel rooms and restaurants and movie theaters and schools and churches and all the places that we go. And so we can help measure that for businesses and make sure that they're acting in best practices. Wow. And so... A lot of what you guys are betting on and and what you're seeing as the future is that because the pandemic hit, because of COVID, consumers and businesses are just going to be hypersensitive to environments and surroundings. And 
I remember talking to you about this before and you pointing out the fact that we still take off our shoes when we go to the airport. So this is kind of what you're you're thinking that in a lot of ways, COVID has forever changed our future. I do. And, you know, if you think about post 9-11, all of the, the, the security measures that were put in place and are still in place from the airport to the airplanes, when you look at when mining disasters happen, you know, there are certain measures that are put in place by governments and organizations to prevent these things from happening again. And so because of COVID, we really feel like this is not necessarily about COVID. It's about measuring the environmental spaces and the health and hygiene moving forward from a preventative standpoint, an epidemic toolbox standpoint, and really just that higher cognizance we have of the environments that we're in. Hmm. And so when you think about your offering, it's so interesting and it sounds like it has a lot of benefits on both the employee and employer side. Is that right? Yes. And how does that work? Like, talk to me about like, from an employer standpoint, like, why is this really interesting? And then also from an employee So from an employer standpoint, you know, we saw places that, you know, sort of put in processes that really made the environment safe and secure where employees felt comfortable coming back. And then you hear stories still of warehouses and different businesses that don't have any processes in place where employees just don't feel comfortable coming into the environment. They feel like they're putting their lives, their families' lives at risk. And so they're not comfortable. So from a business standpoint, you face employees not showing up, you face lawsuits, from the employer side to put these processes in place and to measure them while it's new and while it's relatively confusing and somewhat of a moving target, if you can establish that trust, that comfort level with your employees that you're doing everything that you can, those employees in turn present a better front face to your customer base, which in turn also helps drive additional business through your doors. Interesting. I can see this being something that's almost like a stamp of approval where both customers and employees feel safe because they know it's like a Phoenix Verify using companies. So it sounds like it's also important and plays a role in the customer experience. Absolutely. Because when we come in and we do the inspections, the clients get this certification and it's not a certification that happens once a year. It's a certification that happens every month. And so the way that our clients are using our tools, once the inspection happens, they get that that certification that they can put on their door and their restrooms, points of entry, so that anybody walking in can scan that QR code and really understand the story of what that business is doing to keep them safe without giving away, you know, where areas might have fallen short because it's a continual improvement method. And so when, when we have clients that are using that, they have that certification. It, it really turns out to be an evangelization point or a marketing point because I know when I'm shopping for groceries or when I have to, when I'm making a decision on where to get carry out, I'm going to go to the places that I know have the best practices in place. I'm going to go to the places that I know are sanitizing the grocery carts. They have hand sanitizer throughout the grocery. The employees are wearing masks correctly. The customers are wearing masks and wearing masks correctly. That social distancing is is being adhered to. And so these are the things that are driving my decisions as a consumer. And, you know, really globally, they're driving the purchasing decisions of a lot of people. I have the choice of grocery A or grocery B. Grocery A has the best practices in place. I know this because they've they've told me and I can see it. And Accenture has said that, you know, we're forever changed as a society and we need to see actionable measures in place and we will for the foreseeable future. 
And businesses need to have those processes in place. And in order to do that, you have to train. You have to make sure that that training is implemented and ongoing and adhered to. And we're here to help with that. That's amazing. Do you see this as something that could become a requirement in the future? And where my head's at there, like I'm in the food space, you know, we have city audits, we have brand audits that aren't optional. I think right now your offering is this like opting in a business wanting to know, but could this mm-hmm. be a something in the future we see as a requirement? Absolutely. I I do. I go back to that mining example and the 9-11 example. Once something that happens that's so substantial, preventative measures are put in place and really become a part of the the legislative fabric and and the the trade fabric. And you know, you have OSHA, you have you have all these different organizations that are are measuring and have standards and procedures in place. And you know, this is not the first pandemic that we've had. It's not the first epidemic that we've seen. It's certainly the one that's affected us on a worldwide scale. But you need to be prepared for the next time that it happens because you don't know if the next norovirus or the next swine flu is going to be worse than this. And I think that the that, that COVID caught us completely off guard. And, you know, you need to find something that the epidemiologists and economists can agree on because mm. shut, shutdowns are dramatic as well. And how do you do something and how do you navigate in a world where these things could become more and more frequent and likely will? Yeah. I know you're out beta testing right now. You're in some interesting companies. I'm I'm curious, like what kind of information are you getting back? What are you guys learning along the way that kind of validating your product and informing where you're going in the future? Sure. So we are actively involved now in several restaurant chains, retail stores, casinos, some hospitality groups. We have been in a variety of different businesses that you wouldn't expect from manufacturing facilities through, you know, office spaces, you know, office towers. And the the consistent feedback that we are continually getting is one that businesses feel a little more secure that they are doing the right thing because when you have one footprint, you can be there all the time. When you have 15 or you have 5,000, you can't be. And we, as we hit COVID fatigue, which I think we all are, we become a little more relaxed, a little more relaxed. And so the feedback that we're getting is, yes, we know we're staying on top of things now. And the customer and employee feedback has been really positive they're making that decision to walk in our doors because they see that logo, because they see that the Phoenix Verified logo, they can scan that, they can see the story of, of what it is that we're doing, and it helps drive their decision. This business cares about their customers and their employees. And when you look at the millennials and, and Gen Z, you know, transparency is really key. And we feel like that we're a tool for that. And the businesses appreciate that as well, because it allows them to transact in the currency of trust with with those people. And it allows them to be transparent about what it is that they're doing around the environments that we go into every day. Wow. That that's so cool. That's going to be such an amazing product to see go to market and get bigger. I was wondering for businesses, like I think about small business and single Mm -hmm. owner operators, are Mm -hmm. these all things that they can be applying to? And is Phoenix Verify also for them? Are you going after bigger corporates? 
Our goal is to really, we, we want to keep this as democratized as possible. It is a subscription model and we have plans for the mom and pop where it's very easy. They can go to our site, they can subscribe very easily and it, they'll automatically get enrolled. For clients that are more complex, for a casino or a, a restaurant chain that may have some nuances, we can get down to very customized pricing for them as well. So we, we want to see this on all of the doors that we're going into. And as we move out of beta and into active client base, which we are now, that that is the one thing that we have heard is, well, is this just for the chains? Well, it's, it's really for everybody and anybody because there is a movement for supporting local businesses. You know, there's also the need for convenience. And sometimes it's easier for me to go to location X versus location Y. And Again, seeing that logo is going to make that decision. Knowing those processes is going to make that decision for me. Hmm. Interesting. I, I want to take a step back because you have a really mm-hmm. interesting history that makes you kind of uniquely qualified for bringing this to market. So yes. take a step back. Tell me, how did you even become an entrepreneur in the first place? And what did that journey look like? Tell me about your first company. Well, I I was an anthropology major in college, much to my father's chagrin, because he wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with that. I wasn't sure either, but I knew that my my professor and mentor in college had spent 13 years getting her PhD from Berkeley by living in a cabana in Mexico, writing her her dissertation. Like, well, if she can do that, then I want to spend my senior year running a backpacking lodge and doing my senior thesis on the anthropology of ecotourism. And so that's what I did. And when I finished my senior year, the the place that I worked for said, do you want to come run this place for, you know, for a little while? And so I ended up running the backpacking lodge for a couple of years. And when I came out of the woods, as I like to say, I started, I went to work for public radio in Kentucky and saw how much money businesses spent on advertising. And this was sort of the dot-com rise. And then of course the bust, but I saw how much money businesses spent on advertising and yet had absolutely no idea what happened when a customer called in or came into the four walls of their business. And somewhere around 2001, right after 9-11, I had my aha moment. It was like, well, I should send people into my client's stores to see if they're actually talking about the ad campaigns. Are they giving good customer service? Are they being nice to customers? And do they really even know what it is that they sell? And that was where the formulation started for my first company. And, and, and that I ended up leaving my job at public radio and just sending people out into businesses to make sure that those businesses were delivering good customer service. I ended up selling that company to some partners in 2007 and hanging my second shingle out in 2008 during the global financial crisis because I didn't want to be a little regional player anymore. And I didn't just want to focus in on measuring customer experience and mystery shopping. And so with version 2.0, I really took an approach that I wanted to play with with the big dogs. I wanted to be a global brand. And that's where I really spent my time and energy for the first couple of years focusing. So we picked up clients like T-Mobile and Sonos. And you know, whenever a brand came to market and they needed to see the competitive landscape, we could use this field force that I had to measure how one product was doing against the competition. We started to dive pretty deeply into the multifamily industry, not only on measuring the sales processes, because these REITs spend a ton of money on training the staff at these apartment complexes, but also measuring fair housing compliance. We moved into the alcohol and tobacco space, measuring age verification to ensure that these brands were not selling to minors. 
and uh, did some diversity and inclusion work from 2012 to 2014. From the customer-facing standpoint, you know, sending in a variety of, of, of diversity of customers to see differences in treatment, as well as the job application process, and to see how that shook out when you would send some a, a diverse population in. Were there differences with the same level of qualification? Were there differences in treatment? And so I found that over the course of the, my second company, Measure Consumer Perspectives, that while mystery shopping was always going to be there, it had become really commoditized, but there was a large amount of interest around the compliance space. And that's the area that I really enjoyed working in. Alcohol compliance, tobacco compliance, cannabis compliance. So, or, you know, making sure that the dispensaries were acting in accordance with local ordinances and state ordinances, fair housing. And, and so that was, that was really sort of where my passion was. And I ended up actually getting a little sideways at one point and ended up selling my company back in 18 and actually took my exit January of last year. But that is, oh. that is sort of my background. So I've been deploying this mobile workforce for years, but the lowest level, you know, mystery shopping at the very highest level, brand compliance, and and legal compliance efforts. Well, I always wonder, I, I've been in a few businesses now and I always feel better every time I do a new one. But my question for you, I'm thinking about, it's like you did two businesses, now you're on this third one. Do you feel like it gets easier when you start over fresh in the process? That is a good question. You know, I was 26 when I started my first one and I had no kids and a lot less responsibility. And I didn't have kids when I started my second one. Now, you know, being in my mid forties, I know so much more. I feel like I've gained so much, so much wisdom and have had so many great mentors and, and input from people that it does seem easier, but it's also harder because you're stretched. I feel a little stretched out because of all of the additional responsibilities. Mm. <laughs> you you yeah. don't have those things when you're starting out when you're young. And, and, and quite frankly, the stakes get higher when you're older, it feels like. But it's also a lot more fun because I've got a great business partner and a great team. And I feel like pieces that I didn't have before in my previous companies are just lined up so perfectly in this one. Yeah, for sure. You said something else that was really curious to me that I sometimes feel too. You said you left your first company and when you started your second one, you you wanted to like, you know, get in the game more, be a national, bigger player. I'm always so interested in that because I, I hear entrepreneurs a lot say things like, well, I'm just a small business or, you know, it's like we... We don't value you in our world sometimes if you haven't raised, you know, $100 billion yet. Talk to me about right. why that desire was there for you. I think that part of it was I, I, I was very young and probably not the smartest tool in the tool shed when it came to making the decision on partnerships. I, I was I was moving along at a nice clip with the mystery shopping company and landed a pretty big fish and decided that I needed some help. And I thought that the only way to get that help was to bring on partners and to bring on a husband and wife team and divest 66% ownership of my in my company to them. Mm. <laughs> and you know, lesson learned, you don't do that. <laughs> and when I did that, I realized that they had a much different vision and because they had more weight in the ownership of the company that my drive for being a global company wasn't going to happen with them simply because they wanted to focus in on 
real essential core pieces of market research. So focus groups and qualitative studies, and that's much harder to scale. And Mm -hmm. so that was, that was the reason why I left that one and started version 2.0. I mean, I had, I wanted to be a bigger player, but not even just not even a bigger player, a more focused player. I wanted to to really continue on this path of deploying mobile workforces to see how far I could take it. And so when I when I had that split, it was more of a circumstance of, you know, we have a disagreement on the direction that we want the business to go. And I felt like scalability was really important to me. And being able to, you know, you can do that with a mobile workforce. It's harder to do that when you're bringing clients in for focus groups on a nightly basis. There's only so much bandwidth and room that you have. Sure. So with with your second company, when you went out on your own, sounds like you learned a lot of lessons. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about like, as you move into this new company, what are some things from your first two companies that you feel like were lessons learned or challenges you overcame that will, will be a huge driver to your success now? Hire slow, fire fast. <laughs> oh, the, the, the phrase is true. <laughs> hire slow, fire fast is key. I think the willingness to be vulnerable is important with your partners, with your team. They need to see, you know, not only the successes, but when things are very stressful it makes the team adhere together better. I feel like another area that is always important because we were working with businesses who wanted to inspect what they expect. Doing that internally is also really important as well. And again, not to throw out a bunch of cliches here, but you know, there were some things that I missed within my, my previous company that I wish that I had been paying more attention to or had greater expertise around because had I had that greater expertise, I think that, or had some additional advisement, there were some things that I would not have missed that I think would have made us much stronger. I've always been a big proponent of hire great people and let them run with it. I am not a micromanager. I don't like to be, I feel very uncomfortable there, but I also feel a very strong need for the people that I bring on to be sort of street fighters. You know, startup mode is street fighting mode. And and even as you move from startup to, you know, these different levels of growth that you have, you really need people who are passionate, who are willing to fight, fight for the company, bring new clients into the company, you know, make the strategies, the operations, the processes better. And so I, I really like people who are are very nimble and agile and, and forward thinking because they make the offering better because in many cases, you know, the account managers are the ones that hear and are the first line of communication between you and the client once they come on board. They're the group of people who are part of the onboarding and know how streamlined and seamless it needs to be because that's a point of regret for companies once they come on board and that onboarding isn't smooth. I, I think that you know, the people who are often in the trenches with IT or back in development need to bring their ideas to the forefront because they see inefficiencies. And I also think that de-siloing a company, I know that it's necessary to have these silos, but these silos really need to communicate with one another because that's where efficiencies come to and it's where efficiencies, inefficiencies happen. You know, your marketing isn't talking to your training, isn't talking to your operations, talking to your HR and they sort of exist in their own silos with their own agendas and budgets. And if they don't talk to each other, the business sort of becomes, I feel like, stifled, stagnated, doesn't innovate. Yeah. Such good takeaways and lessons learned too. Like 
definitely things I wish I would have heard earlier on and been mentored around because those mistakes can be really hard. I want to transition us a little bit. A lot of your background, you, you've mentioned Kentucky and but you're now in Park City, Utah. So tell me, how how did you end up in Park City, Utah? I have been coming out here for 30 plus years. My best friend in college was from Park City and her family still lives out here. And so I spent time in the summers coming out, you know, skied out here, took a bit of a hiatus and, and started coming back out here several years ago and just really you know, after living in the woods for three years, even running a backpacking lodge that was down in Tennessee. And so you have the hills down there in Kentucky and Tennessee. I decided that I really needed mountains and Mm -hmm. that I wanted, that I wanted my kids to experience something other than Kentucky. And so there's, there's the need to have mountains and fresh air and just big wide open spaces for me to get out and play in, them to get out and play in. And quite frankly, it's just good for my mental health. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. We kind of devalue that, that piece of making moves like that, but I think it's great. So when, when did you move to Park City? I moved to Park City. It would have been, I think, permanently in October of 18. Okay. So you get to officially stamp yourself with it. A pre-pandemic mover to Park City. I was a (laughs) pre-pandemic mover. My driver's license will tell you so. (laughs) Amazing. So you, you would actually be a great person to talk to about this. I've heard so much about the influx of people to Park City. We're seeing it in Montana too. Since you were there in 18 and now today, what is going on in Park City in the startup world in the last few years? It's really amazing. It feels like that Utah in general is just having such a big technological influx. You've got Silicon Slopes outside of Salt Lake, where you've got just a whole lot of innovation happening up here in Park City. I've, I've just gotten involved with the YPO chapter here in Park City. So it's pandemic time. So I haven't met many people outside of my forum, but it seems like for a period there, there were new people coming into the chapter every day. And it is startup land. There's a diversity in businesses, but there's a, it feels like there's a whole lot of startups, which to me is very energizing because, you know, I think that's a sandbox that I like to play in and it's, it's a different kind of mindset. And I think all of us are in startup land are very ADHD. And <laughs> sometimes when you put all of us in a room together, there's just some really amazing stuff that comes out of it. And, but every day I hear of new companies, new technologies, new innovations, and I'm fascinated by it. I just met a company earlier this week that I'm amazed by and in awe of and can't wait to see what they do. The only way that I can describe it is it's like if you were if pre-iPhone, if we were all walking around with our flip phones and our and our Blackberries, somebody telling us how world-changing the iPhone would be. And they have, it's, it's not a phone. It's, it's, it's a different way of interacting with the web. And when I saw it, I was like, whoa, how can I sign up? I want to, I want to be a part of this company. It's just, just really interesting. But, but I love seeing that drive out here because there's just so much innovation and there's so much, there's so many people moving in and while it's, it is getting crowded. I don't think it's nearly as crowded as Colorado. It's fascinating to see happen. That's great. And I, I love being on the sidelines watching because I think it just spurs more innovation. It, there's an energy that comes with it that gets other people in the game too. So seeing mm-hmm. how that's compounded will be so interesting. Okay. So you're in Park City. You've been there since 18. 
And now you're starting a new company. Tell me about how, how did you meet your co-founder, Jeff, who I know, and he's a fascinating, awesome human. He's so great. How did you guys meet? How did you decide to be partners? All that. So we actually met, it was on a needs and leads call back last March. I say we're getting ready to celebrate our quote unquote one year anniversary. And um, I'd actually, I'd left my company that I'd sold last January and I took three weeks off to ski. And then I started doing some consulting work with a group out of Atlanta. And when COVID hit, I remember like the 10th of March, they're like, we cannot keep you. Nobody's doing anything. Nobody's going to buying our fancy new widget. And so I found myself like, oh my gosh, I don't have anything to do for the first time since I was a Subway sandwich artist in 1992. <laughs> what am I going to do? And so I started to lean into these YPO calls really heavily. And that's where I found Jeff. And neither one of us can remember the first call, but I have I have it marked on my calendar from when I, I know that we did, but we met on a needs and leads calls. And our first conversation was, you know, what do you do? What do I do? Hey, maybe we should consult with businesses that we know in the startup land and established land and help them navigate through this and pivot through this and just do some consulting. And it wasn't until that conference call that YPO had in last April, I believe it was, where it was the Ernst and Young call. And I will reference this in almost every call that I have that I just sort of got slapped upside the head where they said the biggest concern the businesses had was how to bring customers and employees back into environments that they trusted. It was like, that's it, that the new currency is trust. Mm -hmm. And I saw it from the market research space. I'm hearing it now. I see this in every decision that I'm making when I walk out my front door. And that's really how it started. And I went back to him and it took about 25 days of of me explaining what it would do and how we could do this before he finally got it. Then it was just, it was go time. That's awesome. To clarify for our audience, YPO is Young Presidents Organization, a business group that you're referencing. So one, I can't wait for Jeff to hear that you said it took him a few times before he got it. (laughs) He'll love that. (laughs) But I love that you have this like clearly identified aha moment of this call. It sounds like it was this compelling moment where you knew you were the person to go solve this because of your background. Well, it was, it was an aha moment and it was also a, oh no moment because I had been trying to move away from Mm. deploying mobile workforces and sort of trying to establish myself someplace else. And it was, do I really want to go diving down this rabbit hole again? Except it felt like it had purpose. It really did. When I sold my company in 18, I was tired I was, I felt defeated. I just wasn't comfortable with my abilities anymore. And COVID gave me that confidence back. It gave me something that I thought that I had lost as, as a business person, as, as a, as a human being, as an entrepreneur. And it gave me back the sense of this can help people. It's not just measuring mystery shopping for the sake of doing it because the board of directors requires it. It's something that's affected us globally. I mean, regardless of which side of the political spectrum that you're on, from a global standpoint, if something happens in point A, it can affect us all the way in point B. And I think we've all been shocked and traumatized by it. And I I felt like this had a purpose. If we can prevent this from happening again, if we can help open the world back up in a safer way, and if we can keep things safe moving forward, 
I want to be a part of that because I don't think any of us really realized how contaminated the spaces that we go into to can be. And we're paying attention to something differently. So COVID gave me back confidence. It was a painful, it's been a painful year, but it's given me back a confidence that I really thought was gone. Mm. And I was kind of worried about myself for a little bit. I was not quite sure I know what to do with the rest of my life, but there has to be something. And this feels like a good something to do. Yeah. Like it's something to be a part of. Yeah, that's really interesting. It it actually reminds me since Bumble and Whitney Wolf is kind of front and center in the media right now, she she has this very similar story where it's like she really wanted out of the space she was in. Her great idea was like going in a different direction, but the universe had a way of kind of keeping her like, no, you need to go do that within the dating space. And sounds like the universe is pulling you back in for your expertise too. It is. And, but it it feels like it has a greater purpose now. And I have had so many amazing conversations with people over the past year, you know, business leadership and industries that you never thought would come to a shutdown and talking with those people and hearing the, the palpable pain, seeing the way some leaders just stood up and stepped out of their comfort zone and you know, offered help. There's a company down in Louisiana, walk-ons that I've just admired them for the way that they stepped up. I mean, when their restaurants came to shut down, they mobilized and started feeding the workforce from the restaurant industry, started getting out in the streets and how can we help? And, you know, just lots of really good leadership and and innovation and just general giving back. And that's been so refreshing and inspiring. Mm, Yes. Well, Kimberly, I love hearing your story. And if it's okay with you, I would love to transition us into the rapid fire round. Are you okay Okay. with that? Awesome. I am okay. Okay. First question. What are you looking forward to in the next 30 days? The next 30 days, I would say the kids' spring break, getting Mm. them outside and off the the devices. Are your kids remote still or what does that look like? Well, with all the snow, sometimes they're in person, sometimes they're remote, but they're always, always, even in class, in the classroom, always on their devices. So mm. I, I, I need to unplug them. I know the feeling. I, I have threatened my children. I'm like, I am not afraid to smash this thing on the ground <laughs> and not by anyone. But <laughs> no. I'm guilty. I'm super guilty. It's hard when you're both entrepreneurs are, you know, to... Yeah. Uh, Anyways, different time. If your company shut down for a week and you could do anything with your time, not work, what would you do with that week? Ski. Ah, where do you (laughs) ski? Where in Park City are you skiing? I ski both Park City and Deer Valley, although I I kind of, I love snow basin, but we might go up to Sun Valley. It's kind of a a good Mm -hmm. spot up there. Yeah. A lot more vertical and a lot steeper and a lot more challenging, but generally around here, Deer Valley. Awesome. And I think I've told you before, but I am a proud freshman in college dropout that went and worked at Deer Valley. <laughs> Love that mountain. You did. <laughs> Anything in your life binge-worthy right now? Books, podcasts, shows that you're just loving? I think we're a little late to the game, but we finally started watching Shit's Creek. <laughs> it's it's so good. Is it's it? So I was good. looking last night and I'm like, I've heard I should watch this. And then I didn't dare to hit play because I was like, I'm too busy. I, like I'll, I'm the type that binge watches shows. Do you, so what are you like? Do you like to watch 12 in a row? Or are you a once a week kind of person? How do you do it? 
it's it's generally on the weekends and I'll probably be three or four in a row one day, three or four in a row the next day. And then I'll miss it all week long and then get back into it. Now, one <laughs> show that I did binge was Dark, which mm. was so, it, it was very reminiscent of how good Lost used to be. If you remember, if you ever watched Lost, mm. it was like, oh my gosh, it just keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder. Is this like life, death? time travel. What is this? And I did binge watch that. That was, Mm. that's been a couple of years though. Yeah. That's actually, I say the thing I miss most about pre COVID life when I was on planes all the time was Mm -hmm. watching an entire season of a show, like while I was flying from here to San Francisco or something like that. Yes. Um, BC before COVID. (laughs) Before COVID. That's right. Who is someone that you're really looking up to in life right now? Oh, wow. You know, I, I, I feel like from, from afar, I am fascinated by the CEO or the president of ServiceNow, and I can't remember his name right now off the top of my head, but his history in, in business and entrepreneurship and how he has really driven that company to, to, to new success and innovation, I'm just fascinated by. Awesome. I would love to meet him someday. <laughs> mm, there you go. Maybe maybe he'll listen and call you. If you were not the founder of your company right now, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh gosh, I don't know. Maybe because it's ski season, I might be skiing. <laughs> but I, that that's a that's a, a luxury point. I I would probably be doing biz dev for a, a tech company. Okay. I, I, I don't know, yeah. if it's like, know if I'd call it sales as much as like sort of brand evangelization, but. Mm, great. Awesome. Thank you. What's a current challenge you're facing? Well, we are, I think it's something that all startups face is that there's, there's a lot of things to do and not enough time to do it. You know, from, you know, we have made multiple iterations of our marketing materials, trying to stay on top of all the information that's coming out on a daily basis. And at the same time, we're fundraising. At the same time, we're bringing clients on board. We're expanding our team. And there's just not enough me's mm. and not enough Jeff's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's big challenge for so many founders. Final question, what motivates you to keep going on days or hours or weeks when what you're doing seems impossible? Uh, I would say two, one, that feeling that I need to do it because I have kids and you need to have something coming in the door. And two is just a real commitment to my team. I mean, they, you know, Jeff and, and Simon and Lawrence and Becca and Alethea, they all, they all give something to me each day that makes me want to stand up even when I don't want to stand up to, mm. to be there and, and, and help drive this thing forward because it's not just me. It's, it's all of us, it's them. And that's, you know, I don't want to disappoint them. I'm sure that's so motivating too. So thank you so much, Kimberly. I am so excited to watch what happens with your company. It sounds like such an exciting journey. I'll definitely want to invite you back to check in on it. But if you could end by telling our audience, where can they find you online? How do they research your company? Where are you at online? We are at phoenixverify.com and that's a phoenix with an F-E-N-I-X.com, phoenixverify.com. And I'm on LinkedIn at Kimberly Nasa. We also have a LinkedIn page, Facebook page. We don't have an Instagram page. I'm afraid that I've been remiss (laughs) in getting, getting that up, but primarily LinkedIn and our website. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Have a great day. You too. 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Found in the Rockies. You can find links in the show notes or go to foundintherockies.com to get transcripts, links, and contact information for today's guests. If you like what you heard and want more, please rate, review, and subscribe to get notified as our new episodes drop. See you next time.